Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with pastor teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1 says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread. Neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but it Great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. He said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. So what I'd like to do is come back to this text, but I'd like to give introduction to this here from the book of Hebrews chapter 6. So we'll come right back and give exposition, but I'd like to just grab a verse out of the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. We discussed this a little bit in our Wednesday night Bible study and uh, it was good, and it applies to here. The book of Hebrews, though, we're learning in our Bible study on Wednesday night, it has a context to it that it's written to the Hebrews, and it's trying to encourage the Jews or the Hebrews because they are discouraged. They're losing their heritage, as far as we know, at least they thought, to, you know, as far as Judaism, 
They're about to lose the temple. They're losing their sacrifices. They're losing their culture. It's all going down the tubes and changing over to Christianity, which is not going down the tubes, but they didn't know it. So they have to learn. And so what we found out is, is that they were just really struggling. And there's a verse here that I'd like to just bring out in Hebrews 6, verse 10. He tells them something. He says, let me say, he says, God is not unrighteous to forget your work. He says that if God were to forget your work for him, that would be unrighteous. It would be unrighteous of God to actually forget the work that you guys have performed in the past. And he says, don't think that way. In fact, he says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. We forget, but God doesn't forget. I, of late, have been reading and, and doing study on, a, on generals, American generals in the past, and I like when I, I'm just impressed when I see these generals all in a room in their military attire, and they're generals, you know, so their chest is just full of marks and pins and badges, things that they have earned in the past. And when you see the camera span across the room as they sit at a uh, table, you know, it's just the room is full of a wealth of knowledge and experience from these older men. And so I, I listen to what they say because a lot of it, actually more of it I'm learning applies to church, to church work, to the kingdom work. Their wisdom actually applies, their tactics and strategies really apply to us as churchmen, as statesmen. And so when I'm looking at this, I've read over General Mattis's a lot of his work, uh, Mad Dog Mattis, the Marine, who became, of course, Secretary of Defense for a while. I like to listen to Jack Keane and things that he says, and, and he is also the chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. And, of course, you, know, you don't want to be on one side of the camp, so there's this other colonel that I like to listen to, McGregor. I think he's a little left-leaning, but he has interesting things to say. But when I look at them, you know, they all have these pins, and they've been in the military. Some of them, Mattis enlisted when he was 18 years old, 1969. He's still in. Still loyal. Still faithful. And he has these pins to remind everyone once in a while, we didn't forget. We didn't forget when the bullets were flying in the Persian Gulf War at your head. And God doesn't forget. I'm reminded uh, just lately that actually I, I taught parts of Daniel in 1999. I've totally forgot. I, I taught kids Sunday school uh, the writing on the wall with a black light and a glove that floated in midair, you know, for the, for the little kids with crazy music that we actually had to put on tape. I think it was a CD or was it a, a CD? <laughs> Might have been even a cassette tape. I don't remember. And I forgot all about that, you know. I mean, I was 26 years old, young and strapping. <laughs> kind of like now, not much different, but similar. <laughs> God did not forget that. When I stand before God and give an account, that is waiting for me. He says, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, 
which you have showed toward his name in that you have ministered to each other, to the saints, and do minister. When we come back to Daniel and what he is writing, he is very discouraged. You ever be discouraged? You ever been discouraged? Ever been in mourning? You ever been so sad that you don't eat? This is what's taking place. We have Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel. When we read verse 1, I don't know if a portion of this scroll has a separate leaf here, that as you unroll the scroll, it may have sections. This may be a separate leaf within the scroll, because if you look at verse 1, it looks as though it's notarized. It has a a special stamp on it, a seal, probably the signet ring, letting us know, first of all, the date that this is established, who it's coming from. That's why it reminds us, uh, this is Daniel, who is called Belshazzar, his Babylonian name that he was given, so that everyone knows that it's him, which also reminds us that this is an official document from the Persian Empire. Daniel is of high rank in the empire. So verse 1, there's a introduction again. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. Then it says, And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. In the Hebrew word that Daniel picks, and by now he has changed, he's now writing in his original Hebrew tongue. He feels the freedom to do so, and the privilege to do so, actually. And what he means here in this Hebrew, as he writes, as his chronicle, his assistant, is writing in the first verse, he says, the time was appointed, but it was long. The word there in the phrase, actually, appointed was long, means long and strenuous. What he's about to write and the things that he has seen in this vision is like a marathon where you are exhausted beyond, you're just barely making it to the end of the race. It's long, it's strenuous, it is very difficult, almost to the point of exhaustion. It says, and he understood the thing. This isn't one of those where he, he couldn't figure it out. He understood the vision. He had understanding of the vision. And then that leaves off the royal insignia, the heading of the paper. So verse 2, we start the portion. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. Mourning. For a long time. In fact, 3, he says, I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. So he's, he's fasting. He's eating enough so that as his age at 90-something, he doesn't die but he is certainly eating the crumbs that fall from the table. It says, in fact, neither did I anoint myself at all. In other words, he didn't shower or bathe. He didn't use the normal ointments that those of the Babylonian Empire would have used because of the sun and the dry heat. His skin then was scaly. And he writes, till three whole weeks, giving you the impression that these were long weeks. Three whole weeks were fulfilled. It's a Job style, isn't it? Doesn't it remind you of Job in mourning? He's stricken with grief. He's absolutely depressed. And in verse 4, we certify the date just to make sure, because these are important dates. This isn't for no reason at all. He's going to certify the date again, verse 4. And in the 4 and 20th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hiddekel, uh, which we know as the river the Tigris, 
says, then I lifted up mine eyes. Which also gives you a picture, doesn't it? It means he's looking down. He walks around looking at the ground. He's just looking down. He's depressed. I don't get depressed much. Just take it on the chin and go. But I know some people, they just get depressed and they can't help it. Sometimes it's just clinical. You don't even know why. It comes secular. Your brain just secretes certain things and you become depressed. And you look down. Here's the turning point. He says, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked. And behold, a certain man. Now we keep this in thought. This is after three weeks of fasting and mourning and depression. He looks up and he sees a man. And look what he sees. He's clothed in linen whose loins were girded with, with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like the barrel or like a crystal looking. His face is the appearance of lightning. His eyes as lamps of fire, torches. His arms and his feet like in color to polished brass. And the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. When he speaks, it's like being at the old Cleveland Brown Stadium with 80,000 people yelling. It's a roar. We know who this is because later on, John in the Revelation gives us the same description, doesn't he? And it is actually Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate appearance, a pre-Christmas appearance of Jesus Christ in his glorified state. This isn't the humble, meek, lowly Jesus who was the carpenter. This is Jesus, the shepherd, who is, he says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This is the one that will kill those who try to go after his sheep. Verse 7, it says, And I, Daniel, saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but even though they don't see it, the presence of God is there, so much so that even though they don't see it, it says a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. We find later on that when the presence of God shows in a tangible way, the men will actually crawl into caves and, and ask that the rocks fall upon them from the presence and the fear of God. So therefore I was left alone. I saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me for my comeliness. This is an interesting phrase. My comeliness was turned in me into corruption. I retained no strength. What he's saying there is that just the presence of God and the fear, I believe more so the fear of what he is enduring, is causing him to be nauseous. And actually, it's changing the color of his skin. He's turning a little gray. He actually looks his comeliness, which means his, his physical beauty, is now changing. He looks like, if you were to see him, he looks like he has a terrible flu. And what it does is it makes him fall completely to the ground. Verse 9, Yet I heard the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then I was in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. He's like laying dead. Of course, that's where we would all be. And really what's happening here is, is he's getting the request of Moses. Because remember Moses, he says, God, show me your glory. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock and his glory passes by. 
Here Daniel is seeing a little bit more, but so much so that he is crushed to the ground and is laying face down like a dead person. A hand touches him. An angel touches him. We'll find that it's probably Gabriel. Verse 10, And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Now, we know that he's discouraged. And what happens is, is God shows up to encourage the saint, the servant. That's kind of an odd way of encouraging a servant, I think. He doesn't look to be encouraged much, but this is God's point. What God is showing him is he's showing him himself. He's letting him pull the curtain back again so that he can see this, this is who you're dealing with. It's the Almighty. This isn't, this isn't something to fool around with. And so, as we look at this, and he goes on through things here, but as we look at this, to understand how God is encouraging the saint, we have to be reminded what is discouraging this saint, right? In order to find out, God is not just giving a man a stone if he asks for a fish. He's giving him what he needs. And so in order for us to understand how it is that God is actually encouraging him, we have to then know, well, what is the problem? What is discouraging you? And so uh, we kind of have a good idea because we've been teaching through Daniel and its context. But if you would like to throw your ribbon here first, notice the dates. Again, the dates are important in Daniel. So if you look to your heading, in my Bible it says around 534 B.C. is about where we're at. So if we actually go through the pages of Scripture and look back again to Ezra chapter 3, we'll find out something else that's happening right around the same time. So look over in Ezra chapter 3, and you'll find that we are at the same time. So Daniel, right in his life, when this is recorded, it says right around 534 and if you look at Ezra in the center column, it says 536. So we're right about in there. If you look to the page to the right, it says 534. So we're somewhere between 534 and 536, which would be right around 535. Now, we know that Daniel has just of late, within a couple years probably, has learned that the captivity should be over. You can go home. We've been in ruins this whole time. We've been in slavery. The women, you know, I mean, it's, it's, but then it went off to the Persian Empire and things went all right. There were different kings that came. And so we find that people have gone home. Now, we learned previously that Daniel is very concerned about the homeland. Brothers, we have to be concerned about the homeland. We have to be concerned about the kingdom. We have to be concerned about the churchmen. We have to be concerned about church women. We have to be concerned about the church children. We have to have concern. We can't always be selfish and only thinking of ourselves. Daniel is 90-some years old, and he is just downright discouraged and mourning and depressed over the state of what's happening in the kingdom. Honestly, I think if it wasn't for his age, he'd be there. But 
But at, at 90 some years old, he probably can't make the journey by way of mule all the way from the Persian Empire over to Jerusalem. He probably would have died along the way. And he maybe thought, maybe I'm of more value here, being that he is one of the aristocrats, the top brass there, which he was. He ended up giving some. But look what happens here. This is what we find when, when he gets word of what's happening there. In Ezra 3, right around verse 4, they're trying to actually have religious functions at the temple. Now we went over what happened in Nehemiah. What, is, what does the city look like now? It's in an absolute rubble. It looks like a hurricane went through and just plowed everything over. So much so the roads are so covered with rubble, we learned that Nehemiah has to get off of his animal to actually make it. Right? But they're trying. I mean, they're like trying, trying. I mean, they're like trying so much that they're, they're going to put creamers on a bald head trying to get something to happen. <laughs> We're trying here. And so they're having this worship. Look at verse 4. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles as is written, because they know you have to follow the law, and offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom. Now look, as the duty of every day required. Brothers, sometimes you're going to serve the Lord because you like it, because it's joyful. And sometimes you're going to do it because it is your duty. I don't care if you like it or not. It's your duty to do. That's what he is saying. That's what they're trying. They are trying to do these things because they know this is required. But if you look at down in 6, it's a mess. He says, From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not even laid. It was so mowed over when the Babylonians came that the huge hewn stone of the foundation were actually turned. It was a disaster. They burned it with fire. Nehemiah tells us the walls thereof are ruined and the gates thereof are burned with fire. It's just, it's a wreck. But they're trying. And finally in verse 10, we have a kind of a, a wonderful time. It says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, the choir, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. But you got to realize that was a ton of labor. I mean, that was a ton in the heat. All they have is a foundation. Do you guys remember when, our, when this looked like that? Some of you? We have pictures. And so they strike up the band. They don't have walls or anything yet, but we got a foundation. So they celebrate. Verse 11, they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good. For his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But, now look at this. But, many of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept. They wept with a loud voice. And many shouted aloud for joy. Now, 
Daniel, who we're looking into for his discouragement, he's one of the ancient men. So the old guys, the young guys are like, yeah, this looks great. Man, we're finally getting somewhere. I mean, look at this. And then somebody comes and looks at it and they say, I don't see anything. It's all underground. All we have is a foundation. Yeah, but I know. Look at it. And they're excited and they're singing. And the old timers are like, yeah, man. I can remember what it used to look like. And they sit down and cry. It's a mess. Daniel's one of the old timers. He's like, we ain't never going to get this thing off the ground. And so much so, look, 13, it says, so that the people couldn't discern the noise of the shout from joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. I mean, you know, they're in the middle of nowhere, and, all, and what is going on? It's just nuts. But I want you to notice something interesting. Because if you just turn a page back, what do you see? It looks repetitious. I mean, it's obvious something's odd here. In Ezra 2, it's a register. It, more of a census, really, of all the people. It actually lists every family by name and their people that came with that family. Which is interesting, isn't it? What is even more interesting is if you go over to verse 64 of Ezra 2, Ezra 2, 64, look at it, it says, The whole congregation together was 42,303 score. In other words, the whole congregation of the number, because that's what we're looking at here in, in this census, there was 42,360 people there. Now, some would say that's, that's pretty good. I mean, that's pretty good. We have over 40,000 people that showed up. But if you do a little bit of math, I think Israel, before the split, was the population was over a million. And then you figure there was a divide, and the Assyrians came, and the Babylonians came, and let's just say they killed 500,000 people, which is probably, I mean, that wouldn't be out. That means that there's 500,000 left. And then we have 70 years that took place, so we know that they gave birth. There was probably some more deaths involved, so we're, we should probably still be somewhere. I'm a, you know, somewhere right around half a million people, right? 500,000 people, somewhere around there. What does that tell you? We're about 450,000 people short. Where are they? Here's where you'd have to have, is your cup half full, is your cup half empty? 40,000 people here. Where's the rest of the, where is everybody? What were they doing? Verse 66, look at it, it says, The horses were 730 and 6, their mules 245, their camels 435, their asses 6,720. I mean, they kept pretty good records, don't you think? And then look, verse 68, you got to circle it. And some of the chief of the fathers, when they had come to the house of the Lord, the chief fathers, meaning that these were prominent men, 
when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. They gave, after their ability, unto the treasure of the work threescore and one thousand drams of gold. You know, that comes out to be about $100,000 in our day. That's pretty good, I think. And actually, if you put together, it says 5,000 pounds of silver and 100 priests' garment. These particular chief men, they came and donated probably a couple hundred, a few, probably three, four hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff. That's pretty good. At least I think. Don't you? I mean, well, now we got to remember... This is talking about discouragement and encouragement. So is your cup half empty? Is your cup half full? How do you roll? You could say, well, at 40,000 people, that's pretty good. We're we're several hundred thousand short. But I want you to notice it's recorded. They took accurate, precise records of every person, of every family, of every dollar, of every cent, of every animal, of everything that they brought. They kept records. Now go back to Daniel. Why is Daniel in mourning? Because the city's a wreck. But look what happens here. And Daniel, after you go through this outstanding vision where Jesus Christ reveals himself to the prophet who is discouraged and gives him a full understanding, a full glimpse of deity in God, he then sends an angel to help him because he's knocked flat on his face. And then what happens is something very interesting that we'll get to next week. It kind of gets us into some of the warfare, and I don't want to get into that. We'll get into that next week. But skip through down all the way to verse 20 of chapter 10. The angel says something to him that's incredibly interesting. He says, Then said he to Daniel, Knowest thou wherefore I am come unto you? Do you know why I am come? And then he says, and now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia? We've got to skip over some of that because we've got to answer this question. He's asking, Knowest thou wherefore I am come unto thee? Verse 21, I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. The reason that he came, he says, Do you know why I came? I came to show you something. I want to show you, and he says, That which is noted in the scripture of truth. And then he goes on to tell. Now, again, chapter 11, we have another mark here, probably in, of this exsignet ring. I also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm, to strengthen him. And then look at it. He says, and now will I show thee the truth. So if you put all this together, the angel says, do you know why I am coming? I'm coming to show you something that is noted in the scripture of truth. And then he says, okay, here's some official business, but let's get to the matter. And then he says, now will I show thee the truth. And then he goes on in chapter 11, which we'll get to next week, but he goes on and he tells him, and if you just read through it in these verses, now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength through his riches he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia, and a mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with a great dominion, and on and on and on. What he does is he goes on to basically show him, is what his words are, he is showing Daniel 
what appears to be a very detailed history lesson. If you read through the whole chapter, it becomes almost boring. It's like reading the Encyclopedia of Britannica. This is what happened, and this king happened, and this king happened. And this guy, he didn't like it, and he came up, and he rose up, and he, he had a lot of money, and he knew this, this, and this woman stands up, and he goes on, and it looks like it's almost a record of an encyclopedia or a detailed history, but it's not history because it's prophecy. It ain't happened yet. But I want you to notice, because what's happening in 21 when he says this phrase, I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. It's not your Bible. He's not showing him Bible. Normally when we see scripture, we think the scriptures, it's the Bible. But this isn't the Bible yet. And if you notice too, the word scripture doesn't always mean scriptures like Bible. The word script or writings or script, it's just I'm going to show you something that's writing and it's a scripture and it's a scripture of truth. But I also want you to note, look at it carefully. He says, I'm going to show you which is noted in the scripture of truth. He's saying, I'm going to show you a portion of the scripted truth. What he's actually showing him is a register. He's showing him an official document. That's why he keeps going over this over and over again. You are writing as an official of the Persian Empire. You are writing official documents. And what the angel is saying, let me show you an official document, a register of things that look like history because they're so accurate and so detailed, but they're not their prophecy. We find this same kind of language in the book of Revelation. Revelation 20, verse 11, he says, John writes, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. It's Jesus Christ in his glorified state. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. The word books is also known, uh, you can also translate the writings or the registers. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, look at it, were judged out of those things which were written in the writings, or the books, or the registers, according to their works. What will happen then is the book will come alive. Here is, is talking about the great white throne judgment. So he's talking about people who are non-believers. We don't stand before the great white throne. We're redeemed. We stand before the mercy seat. We have no judgment of our sins because they're taken care of on the cross. But what the same thing, the similarities between these two judgments is, is that the books will be opened. And all of us have a register. And when we stand before God and give an account, the noted truth of Scripture will be opened. And we will stand before God and every single solitary thing that we've ever done or thought or said or even thought to say will be read to us from a detailed chronicle dated register.
every decision that we made, everything that we do, everything that we don't do, is recorded, detailed. That's why in Nehemiah, that's why God shows him that. You think somebody forgot when you were sweating like a hog, trying to get a stone into the foundation of the temple, and then everybody sang over it? You think that somebody forgot that? No, it's written down. Every single thing is written down. So what is he actually trying to tell him? The same verse in Hebrews. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love to the saints. So if nobody notices and no one even cares, God does. And not one single thing you do one thing. A cup of water, he says, will be forgotten. And here, it actually says that they will encounter their sentence, their death sentence, according to what they have done as far as the sins go. But when we stand before God, we just get rewarded. You did this. Rewards rewards for the millennial kingdom so that you will have dominion with me so that you will be the top brass in my kingdom here are your rewards as you worked down there there was a register constantly being taken and it's for the millennium so that when dominion finally is taken away from the devil and given to the king we will rule and reign with him and all of the things that we've done down here will prevail. Now, I had this conversation with my daughter. Sometimes we, we drive around, we do this, and we talk, and we chat, you know, and, and sometimes we sit in the driveway and talk about things. And we were talking about biblical things so much so then the lights start blinking in the house, you know, because mom's like, your food's been on the table for 20 minutes already. It's cold. Come on in. What are you guys doing? What are you doing? <laughs> I said, isn't it hard to not want to accomplish things in this life and then balance it with the things of the coming life? You know, when I was writing the calendar for Minutemen, I looked at the dates and I thought, good night. What's the matter with me? Must be mental. You want to spend all that time with these little boys? What's the matter with you? And we went through it. But you have this thing inside that says, I, I want to have a good life now. I want something now. I, I, want, to I want to go on vacations. And I want, to, I want to have, I don't want to be in debt up to my eyeballs for my whole entire life. I, I mean, I, I want to, you know, maybe I should just work and make some money. And, you know, and then you guys, maybe I should do this. We should go on vacations. We should enjoy. We should do. But what about the next life, though? We know it. We believe it. We believe there's a millennium coming. We believe. Jesus said, sell all that you have and follow me and lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust doth not corrupt. And we believe it. And then she said something interesting. You know, 17-year-old girl. She says, it's just hard to process. Because we live in here. We live today. 
It's just hard to process. We believe it. It's just so hard to process. Isn't that true? Daniel's discouraged. Don't be. Serve the king. He won't forget. Believe me. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.